Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host. As always, we uh, had an interesting episode last week. We did a quick half hour uh, immediate first take after the Apple event. Uh, and I was actually sitting outside the Apple event. So apologies again for some of the audio issues we had last week. Um, this week, we're going to do, as promised, a slightly deeper dive on some elements of what Apple announced last week. Uh, and that's going to be the entirety of this episode. So we, we're not going to have our question of the week this week. We'll, we'll bring that back next week now. We already have a topic picked out for that, which we'll mention later. Um, but we're just going to do a deeper dive into some of the specific things that were announced last week and also um, some of the news from the last few days as it relates to those things. So we're going to run through things more or less in the same chronological order um, that we did last week, um, which mapped the chronological order of the event itself. So we'll kick off talking about the watch um, updates from the event. We'll then talk about the iPad Pro, uh, Apple TV and then we'll wrap up with the iPhone and we're just going to touch on the iPhone briefly today uh, we'll probably go into some more detail next week and our question of the week will relate closely to that as well so we'll kick off um, by talking about the Apple Watch um, we did cover this in some detail last week so I'm not going to go over the Hermé um, bands or anything like that this time around but there were a couple of things to talk about there um, Aaron you had a thought there about the, the killer apps or lack thereof so why don't we kick off with that yeah, I, I, you know, this watchOS 2 update that got delayed today because of a bug, although I won't be surprised if it shows up tomorrow or Friday. But uh, this watchOS 2 update was the big deal because it was all about apps, that, you know, apps would be available on on the watch, and this time real apps, not the sort of cobble, the, the, the hindered version that it exists up until now. But yeah, I, I thought it was strange that at the event there wasn't like a killer app. I mean, the coolest app demo from last week, in my opinion, on the watch was the health one, the the health monitoring one. Right. Yeah. And and that was not a consumer facing app. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was in the sense that a doctor might prescribe it for a mother or something, but right. But right. it was not sort of a general consumer facing app, and there really wasn't a killer app on stage last week. Right. Which. I don't know. I mean, it seems like developers have had all summer to work on that. And mm -hmm. it's not just that they haven't shown up, that they didn't show up at the event last week. It's also that they haven't shown up outside of the event. There right. hasn't been a new watch app to get a bunch of attention. And I, I'm not, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom. It's just that it appears that developers still haven't really figured out how to use the watch as an app platform. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned that the health demo, um, you know, my wife's in the last month and a half of pregnancy. And so, you know, the demo is very relevant to her right now. And I, you know, we were talking about this week, she's about just getting to the stage where she has to do these, um, the, the no stress test or whatever that thing is called that they were demoing. Um, and I was saying, you know, there's this really cool thing and she has an Apple watch and she's like, oh, does, does that mean I could do it on my watch and not have to go to the doctor's office? And I was like, no, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably not. Um, but you know, that's the point. Like this is a great application of this kind of stuff that, you know, most people are not going to be able to experience that right away, even if they happen to be seven and a half months pregnant. And I'm um, guessing she won't get pregnant again just to do the app. So. <laughs> I suspect nothing, <laughs> nothing would convince her to do it again at this <laughs> yeah. point. Um, she's had a, a harder pregnancy than usual, but um, she, uh, you know, she couldn't do that. And, and, you know, Facebook Messenger, I think, is probably the most high profile of the apps that were mentioned on stage. And I think that is an indication that some of the holdouts and Facebook has been one of the big holdouts are coming now 
um, that watchOS 2 is being released. But um, yeah, there wasn't anything where you kind of went, oh, this is what the watch is for, or this is the kind of thing that the watch is going to uh, deliver that, that we haven't had before. So yeah, I, I'll be very interesting. You know, once watchOS 2 is actually alive, uh, and presumably that will happen in the next couple of days, um, you know, what new apps will come out of the woodwork and, and which of those will be like the Air, the Airbnbs or the Ubers or Tinders or whatever you want to mention that, that's been so successful on the iPhone as a completely new model for doing something, you know, what, how's, how's that going to get replicated on the Apple Watch? I continue to be pretty bullish about that in principle, but you're quite right that we've seen little evidence that it's actually happening so far. It's interesting to wonder if it's a function of developers not having had enough time yet to come up with the cool idea or innovation, or if it's a function of the, the platform and the limits inherent to it. I mean, you've got a smaller screen, and that's not trivial. That's a really big deal when it comes to uh, developing an app. Uh, you know, I'm I mean, like the, the app that's coming to mind right now is an example of something that was really innovative and cool is Starwalk. I don't know if you've ever tried Starwalk. Yeah. And it's an amazing use of an iPhone. It really is. Uh, my son so this is, is really this is the one where you point it up into the sky and you see the stars and planets and so on. Right. Of, and you yeah. can kind of pick a constellation and it will point you to it. And I mean, right. I mean, it's just it's an amazing use of an iPhone. It's it's really creative. It's something that I don't think anybody imagined when Apple first started letting third party apps onto the iPhone. But somebody came up with it and it's amazing and is totally worth the money. And it's a really fun app to use. It, there's it, it doesn't feel like there's anything like that yet for the watch where it's sort of yeah. like this unique amazing nobody's thought of it yet but wow what a compelling app to have on your watch there's not one of those yet and and again i don't know if it's just a function of de developers need more time or if or if we're going to see mostly communication oriented apps like facebook messenger where really for most app developers it's just about notifications mm -hmm. you know, yeah i think about that's what it's be about yeah, actionable notifications specifically, I think, will be where it comes in, where you cannot just see something but reply to it or take some other action off it right yeah. away. I think and that's, that's going to be key. And that's neat and it's useful, but I don't know. It, it doesn't have yep. the same sort of power appeal as mm -hmm. something like Starwalk. So. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I'm very curious to see what we get. And it may take a while. I mean, not all the amazing things that we see on the iPhone showed up within, you know, 2008. Um, right. Uh, and so, yeah, it may well take a while for some of those things to emerge. But I think the sheer volume will go up considerably and some of the bigger names that have been missing will show up. And that, that in and of itself should lead to some innovation. I think some of the innovation comes, too, from app developers seeing what other people have done and being sort of sparked by that and then building on that in some meaningful right. way. And so I suspect we'll see some of that, too. Um, the other thing um, that you mentioned in our little pre-conversation was, was the fact that Apple released new colors um, for the Apple Watch uh, at the event, um, and you know, more broadly, kind of, what does this say about upgrade cycles for the Apple Watch? And and to take a step back, I guess, you know, what we saw last year was that there was no new iPad Mini. Um, this year, there was a new iPad Mini, but there was no new iPad Air, having introduced the iPad Air 2 last year. Um, and so what we're starting to see is this assumption that I think many of us have had that a Apple's products get, uh, other than Macs, it's worth noting that they've never been on single-year upgrade cycles, but other than Macs, there's been this assumption that things get upgraded every year, and yet Apple's increasingly showing that that's not necessarily going to be the case, um, for individual models especially. And so um, it raises this question about what the upgrade cycle looks like for the Apple Watch. Yeah, and and how Apple is viewing up 
product cycles generally, in fact. I, right. I can't remember a product where Apple, maybe the last one was the original iMac, where Apple released new color schemes mid-cycle. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm really strained to, to think of one. And, and it's silly that color, you know, would be limited to regular product cycles. But the way Apple works is that's generally been the case. There was a recent, man, I can't remember the source, but there was a recent quote from Tim Cook saying that Apple releases products when they're ready. And that hasn't actually been true. I mean, Apple has had its own sort of internal schedule and some Mm -hmm. products were released a little before they're ready, although that doesn't often happen, but it sometimes does. Right. And then other products, you kind of had the sense that they were sitting around for two months waiting for enough material to build up to have an event. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm curious how things are going to change with Apple and its product cycles, especially because they're still so tied to kind of a regular series of events during the year, which is ironic because if you rewind into Apple's history back when they were tied to the Macworld conference. Right. The reason they broke away from Macworld is because they didn't like the calendar that Macworld was imposing on them when it came to product mm-hmm. announcements. Right. And it gave them the freedom to schedule it sort of whenever they wanted. Mm-hmm. The ironic outcome now is that Apple has a fall event every year. Right. right. Although it, used to, it has had two, and now it only apparently well, this it, year at least will only have one. So right, which is another reason that's changing it, too. It, it throws all the product cycle, you know, conventional wisdom up in the air again. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just curious if Apple has decided they're not comfortable being constrained the way that they've now constrained themselves over time. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, there's been some talk about the fact that new Apple campus has a huge auditorium in it. And, you know, one of the other things that's come up in the past is that Apple has to commit to venues pretty early on in the year, even if nobody knows about the date as such, but it has to commit to venues because it needs to book an external venue for these announcements. And, you know, the Civic Auditorium in San Francisco, the Bill Graham Auditorium that they used this time around, um, you know, Downs College that they used last year. Um, you know, it, you have to book these things in advance and that commits you to a certain timeline whether or not your products are ready. And, you know, iPhones kind of have to come out at roughly the same time every year, although there's been a slight shift in the exact availability date this year. But, um, yeah, having their own auditorium, having their own calendar essentially allows them to, to launch things when they're actually ready rather than being beholden to somebody else's calendar. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how events change if that's what's happening. And it, mm-hmm. I totally get that this is a lot to read into new watch colors. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. we've, we've kind of blown this up big, but watch colors aren't the only thing here. No, exactly. L- like you said, the iPad 2 didn't get updated. Um, the, the iPad was moved from an October event to the September event, and now there's not going to be an October event. I mean, there's... There's actually the, the the watch colors are just one tiny representation of something that maybe is afoot. And those mm-hmm. you know those of us who have been watching Apple over the years, I, I think we have reason to be less confident about what the future holds when it comes to product cycles than would have been the case last year, the year before, the year before that. Right. And I, I think a phrase that you used a couple of weeks back was, "Apple is predictable until it isn't." Um, and, you know, that's very applicable here. You know, we've right. come to rely on these patterns and they're great. And, and, you know, this year, as, you know, last year, you'd have been dead on if you predicted that it was going to, you know, the event itself was going to be this week, this past week. Um, you know, if you accounted for the fact that it was Labor Day, you probably could have been fairly certain that it was going to be on a Wednesday. And sure enough, it was, you know, so that part of it was predictable. But right. if you ditched the October event, you know, the actual iPhones are going on sale a week later than they usually do. 
Um, you know, we've got this new reservation system for picking up phones in stores, which we'll talk about a bit later on. Um, you know, there are changes every time around too. And so it's always impossible to be completely certain that, thing, that things will follow the past pattern. Yeah, I think the big things are what are being thrown up in the air more than right. than not right now. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's exciting. I th- I think if mm-hmm. you're an avid Apple watcher and you've been really good at timing your purchases based on the way Apple does things, I think the uncertainty going forward can be a little annoying. I know I'm annoyed when it comes to the MacBook Pro right now because right. I was sort of one. counting on a new one coming out this fall based on. Mm-hmm what was going on with Intel and Skylake processors and everything. Right, but now it right. looks like I'm going to be waiting until February. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, well, let's move on to the iPad. Um, a couple of specific things I wanted to talk about here. One was uh, the comment from a former uh, CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, about um, styluses. Um, and the other is a comment made from the current CEO during the event itself about the future of computing. So the first comment is, um, Steve Jobs famously, you know, in introducing the iPhone, I think, sort of said effectively, if you see an iPhone, they blew it. If you see a stylus, they blew it. Meaning, you know, if you need a stylus to use a phone, um, then somebody screwed up in the execution on their phone and the user experience there. Um, this has been covered fairly well in the last few days, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But um, to my mind, you know, he was talking about a phone. He was talking about requiring a stylus rather than simply having it as an optional extra. And this was, you know, several years before the iPad launch, let alone this larger iPad that's sort of very sort of creativity-centric, among other things. Um, so to my mind, there's no kind of huge conflict here. You know, this is an optional extra. You know, the iPad Pro will be perfectly fine as an iPad without a stylus. Uh, but with the Apple Pencil, it gains a new set of functionality. And, you know, for some people could replace a Wacom tablet or, or whatever, um, you know, and, and will, you know, increase the utility of sort of drawing functions and that kind of thing on the iPad. So to my mind, there's no conflict. I don't know what you think about this, Aaron. No, I think that's right. And this isn't the first time it's happened. I think probably the most misunderstood quote is Steve Jobs quoting Pablo Picasso, you know, good artists mm. copy, great artists steal. Right. And that's been regularly misused by by critics of Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And what Steve Jobs meant, what Picasso meant, is when a great artist steals, he takes it as his own. Right. Whatever, whatever, whatever technique or or approach to art that somebody else did before, a great artist is the one who can take it and make it his own, so that it belongs to him and not to somebody else now. So it's not a copy of that it's like a transfer of ownership because the new artist is so much better at it. Right. And that's the way Apple's always viewed that quote. And so mm-hmm. the same thing is it fo- is a foot with the stylus quote. I, I, I mean, it is entirely about whether or not a stylus is required for use, mm-hmm. not whether or not it could be a useful right. addition. Right. So. Yeah. Um, and then the other quote was this one about the future of computing. And I'm just going to pull up the exact quote here because I think it's important to get it right. But um, Tim Cook in introducing the segment about the iPad said, the iPad is the clearest expression of our vision of the future of personal computing. And I find that really interesting because of course, what's been happening with the iPad over the last couple of years now is first stagnation and then decline in sales while the Mac's actually been growing. So to the extent that the iPad's supposed to be the future, it hasn't felt that way in terms of what's actually selling uh, at Apple. And so I wanted to just spend a couple of minutes sort of dissecting that comment and 
getting your views, Aaron, on, on what you think it means and, and what the implications of that are. You know, does, is the iPad Pro kind of an, an indication that Apple wants to turn that trend around, that ultimately it does expect the iPad to somehow supersede the Mac, or does that mean something different from what perhaps it may, seems to mean on the surface? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, I, I mean, I think the, the tell there is the fact that Apple made a keyboard for the iPad Pro. Mm-hmm. I, I, that I, and it's funny because they're really embracing a perspective much more similar to Microsoft's, right? When it comes to the, sort of the blending of the laptop and the tablet, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the details matter, and that's where a lot of people have complaints about one device or the other. A lot of people like their Surface tablets better because they're more like regular computers. Um, but I, I think uh, there's a lot about computers today. That is fiddly, like file management. I mean, the fact that you know the 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 concept of the original Macintosh with Windows on a desktop and icons that you click and open apps and a menu across the top that you select functions from. That is not an iPad metaphor for use of a computer. Mm-hmm. And I, in the end, I, I suspect that's what he's talking about. You shouldn't have to remember where you put a file ever. Right, right. And on an iPad, you don't lose files, right? They're all bound up within the app that you're using. So if you Mm -hmm. have a presentation, you go into the presentation app first, and then you find the file that you want to use. Right. On a computer, it's the other way around. You you know, Mm -hmm. most, I mean, sometimes people fire up the app and use Open Recent or something, but... But the truth is, a lot of people using computers today are still clicking on icons for documents and then pulling up the app to edit the document. Mm -hmm. It's much fiddlier, and it's always had uh, a learning curve, a skill acquisition barrier, friction that does not exist in the way Apple's done touch devices. I think that's what he's talking about, is getting away from all those old metaphors that Mm -hmm. are, are, are full of a lot more friction. Interesting. Okay, so you see it as mostly about the kind of the software and the kind of the the models, I guess, the mental models and the sort of models in software of how you kind of interact with things and build things and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think so. I I mean, the iPad Pro was all about a movement and making the iPad more powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, But you'll notice it didn't do it in a way that made it like a laptop. Right. Yeah, this has been one of the most interesting sort of differences between Microsoft and Apple's approaches over the last few years. And we talked about this a little bit when we had an episode a few weeks back about Windows 10. Um, But, you know, Microsoft's vision has been about essentially creating what feels like a single operating system with slightly different implementations on different devices. And Apple seems to have carefully avoided that. Yeah. You know, keeping OS 10 and iOS separate and distinct, yes, borrowing features from one to the other. And, you know, this sort of Apple playbook concept that I, I briefly mentioned in last week's episode and that I wrote up in a post this past week, you know, ultimately there are uh, five key features that are the same on all of Apple's operating systems, uh, which Tim Cook kind of delineated at the event last week. And yet the way they're implemented on these different devices is quite different. Um, they're more similar on the iPad and iPhone than they are anywhere else. but. Um, they are still distinct and different, uh, and there are things that exist in one place that don't exist in the other. Um, the other thing that Tim Cook kind of mentioned after he made this comment about the future of computing is I, he talked about, and I'm just reading from my notes here, so it's a paraphrase, but a simple multi-touch piece of glass that instantly transforms into virtually anything you want it to be. And so I think, 
it's also as well as the sort of mental and software model stuff that you're talking about i think it's the the fact that this is ultimately just a pane of glass you know it's not um you know a laptop is a pane of glass attached to other hardware like a keyboard and so on and that means it's you know very functional for lots of things um it has a trackpad for you know potentially an external mouse and other things like that you can attach microphones and stuff to it um, and yet it's also limiting and that it's not a great thing to hold in your lap and watch a movie or uh, a great thing to use, you know, on a plane to read a book, um, you know, and so the the iPad in its different varieties is more flexible in that sense, and then it's just the piece of glass, essentially, with a fairly thin amount of metal and, and all the sort of CPU stuff behind it, um, and yet with the iPad Pro, it starts to transform into other things as well, you know, it, you always could transform an iPad Air into something more by using a third-party keyboard, but now has this tightly integrated keyboard that works in a special way. You always could use a stylus, but now it has the Apple Pencil, which works in a special way. So, um, you know, it's, it can now be transformed into more things than the iPad by itself could earlier. And I guess that's partly what this is about, is this increased flexibility. And two, I mean, just this, I have a, a cheap Windows laptop sort of well, sort of a convertible thing um, from Lenovo that I use occasionally for work. Uh, but yesterday, I. I needed a computer for my son to use to play a game on and the fact that it had a touch screen made it much more accessible to him because that's what he's used to yeah. um, and you know I, Apple's talked about all the reasons why it doesn't want to do touch screens on Macs but the fact is that it kind of doesn't need to because if you want that touch screen uh, approach you start with an iPad instead of starting with a Mac and then you add whatever other tools you need to to it and I suspect that's really kind of what they're getting at here um, I think you're right. When I think about, I mean, so last week I commented that the iPad Pro is going to have a big market in education. Mm-hmm. I still really strongly believe that. I, I, I mean, so I teach, I teach about 150 to 200 students a semester, and I'm really attentive to the devices that I see them bringing into class. Mm-hmm. Each semester, there are more tablets, um, whether there's Surface tablets or iPads, than there were in the previous semester. I think the iPad Pro, I, I, I really expect to see a lot of iPad Pros in January when our new semester starts. I think a lot of students will pick them up over the holidays, gotten them as gifts, decided to upgrade, you know, from whatever they had before. And <clears throat> I, I think getting to the comment that's, that uh, Tim Cook made about the future of computing, it really is the rising generation that's going to decide if there's anything to that. I mean, if kids, if college students are the ones using these devices in a way that excludes them from using computers, like regular laptops and desktops, then then Tim Cook is right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why right. I think education is going to be a big deal for the iPad Pro, mm-hmm. because as more and more students, but also educators are able, and granted, this is my world, so maybe that's why I'm so focused on it, <laughs> but as, as more and more students and educators are able to use tablets and iPads for everything they're doing, it seems like that's where everybody's going to end up. Right, right. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, I think there's there's applicability, and I think we talked about this briefly last week, but for the iPad Pro across um, education, but also the enterprise, and then, you know, personal and family use and so on as well, it just really feels like there's a lot of potential here for it to show up in different places. So, yeah. um, I think yeah. there's still limitations in that vision. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, watching an iPad, uh, watching a movie is easier on an iPad because mm-hmm. the way you hold it in your lap. But right. typing on an iPad on your lap is still a pain in the butt. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. there's no easy way to write with an iPad in your lap. 
I've never mm-hmm. seen one. I mean, without right. you know having a having something to help make it more convenient, like a pillow or whatever. A lot of people complained about the Microsoft Surface as a laptop replacement because you can't really type with that keyboard right. and right. the kickstand on your lap. Mm-hmm. And the iPad Pro has the exact same problem. Uh, I wonder if we're coming on a point where text input is going to need a more revolutionary change than the keyboard for for that to really change. Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. I think Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal calls it lappability. Um, yeah. You know, this idea of you know how easy it is to balance something on your lap. But I think the other big difference, and I've always talked about this with the Surface, is you know the Surface is kind of positioned as this no compromise computer, like it's a tablet and a laptop. And the reality is every device represents a compromise, yeah. uh, and you just have to pick which compromise you want to make, or rather which you know of several factors is the most important to you, and you, you decide the device on that basis. And the difference here is Microsoft itself only has one device it can sell you, which is the Surface, which is this you know, compromise, um, you know, Apple has always been very clear. Like if you need a laptop and a tablet, we'll sell you both, you know, and if you want a smartphone and, you know, an Apple TV and whatever else, we'll sell you those too. You know, we, we don't right. try to sell you this vision that there's one device to rule them all. Uh, and yet Microsoft, because that's kind of the only arrow they have in their quiver is kind of, that's what they have to sell you unless they want to send you to a third party for a laptop or whatever. So interesting difference. Um, Let's move on then to the Apple TV, and we did talk about this, you know, the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago as a preview to the event, Aaron really did a deep dive on um, the Apple TV as a potential gaming platform, and so we wanted to revisit that a little bit. Um, One of the interesting things that came up in in that context um, was in the developer guidelines for the Apple TV and tvOS um, that Apple has released to developers, um, there's this interesting limitation on the size of... Apple TV apps uh, of 200 megabytes, which, you know, in the context of some of the stuff we talked about two weeks ago, you know, some of these bigger uh, iPhone apps today weigh in at sort of three gigabytes. And so there seems a a strange limitation. And yet um, there was more to that than met the eye. And Serenity Caldwell at uh, iMore did a good job of kind of digging into this a a little bit more. Um, And it turns out that essentially 200 megs is just kind of the container size. Um, and then you can use on-demand resources and other features that have been in iOS as well um, to essentially download more uh, content up to two gigabytes at a time uh, to your app and then use on-demand resources to um, swap out content over time. So if somebody's just starting to play a new game, you might download levels one through ten, and then as they advance in the game, you might delete the first five levels and add another five levels to replace them uh, to allow gameplay to continue swapping out resources in this way. So it was an interesting complexity. I'm curious to know kind of why Apple decided to architect things in this way. I mean, the devices are somewhat limited on storage, but um, they have more storage than entry-level iPhone, as we mentioned last week. So um, Aaron, any kind of additional thoughts on that? Well, I do want to take a moment to pat myself on the back because (laughs) that was a a prediction, and I've gotten many wrong, but that was a prediction I got right. (laughs) I don't know if you remember when we were talking about it as a gaming platform and the and the rumors out there that it was only going to have 16 gigs, uh, I, I commented that I expect Apple to make all of the app thinning technologies standard mm-hmm. for developing on the Apple TV, and that's what they've done. Right. The right. funny outcome, though, where my prediction was wrong, but it, my sources, Mark Gurman, were not accurate. <laughs> um, now, the where the funny thing is, is the Apple TV ended up with way more stars than people expected. Right. And then Apple's limitations were probably more severe than people expected. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, funny and interesting combination in the end. It, it is, but that said, I think in practice it's not going to be too much trouble. Um, the we commented on how the Apple TV is going to need to be connected to the internet sort of nonstop, mm-hmm. and that turns out to be true also. Um, I, I think what's curious about this though, because let's take the, the the size limitation and combine it with the fact that Apple has decided that if you make a game for the Apple TV, it has to support the Siri remote, which yes. means if you make a game, you can't require a, an external, like a third-party controller. Um, it sort of feels like Apple doesn't yet know what kind of gaming platform they want this to be. I, I mean, it certainly seems like they want it to be casual, and that's, I think, what the Siri remote limitation is all right, about. Right, that's the sort of ba- basic bar here, but... But, but it's kind of the upper limit, right? That's in question. Yeah, it, it really seems like Apple is kind of sort of saying, well, here are the basic rules because we're not sure what's going to happen with the Apple TV. We're not sure where developers are going to take it as a gaming platform. I, I, I just get a vibe of a lot of uncertainty about the future of it as a specific, specifically for gaming as far as Apple is concerned. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it, you know, I think we kind of established a couple of weeks ago, again, in that earlier conversation that this wasn't going to be sort of a hardcore console that would be competitive in in power terms with Xbox and PlayStation. And the question was just kind of how far it would go. And it still seems a little unclear on that point. Um, obviously, the vast majority of people who are going to buy an Apple TV are not going to have a third party gaming controller um, yet, you know, um, partly because the device has just barely been launched. You know, some people may have controllers that they've used with an iPhone in the past and, and may be able to reuse in this way, but the vast majority of buyers are not going to have anything. And so from that perspective, I think it makes sense that, you know, Apple says yeah, things have to use the remote, at least for now. But the reality is, you know, the remote has a very small number of buttons clustered very closely together. Um, and, you know, your third-party gaming controllers have a lot more buttons, you know, in different configurations. And so although it may be possible to recreate some game experience with a smaller number of buttons that you'd find on the Siri remote, it's likely to be a pretty inferior experience. And uh, as a game developer, you're not necessarily going to want to uh, sort of pare down your experience in that way because that's the way that most people are actually going to experience it. Um, the original guidelines were actually slightly different. That's interesting that Apple changed the guidelines mm-hmm. shortly after releasing them, which, you know, the original guidelines said it wasn't required, um, but it was recommended that, the, that, that all games support the Apple Siri remote. Um, and yet that changed. I don't know why it changed at the last minute like that. Um, but it feels like they might eventually go back to that policy at some point once the game, the game, the App Store is a bit more established. There, there is one... Um and there's there's one huge category of games for which this is going to be a constraint. It's the third party shooters, right? It's it's where you're sort of or first person shooters. I mean, where you're taking the perspective of a character that roams the world and interacts mm-hmm. with it. That's that's where it's hard to imagine. I can't imagine playing a first person shooter on that little Siri remote. Mm. And right, uh, especially because these games are also high tempo. But this is the category of games that defines the high-end gaming, gaming world. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, first-person shooters are what, you know, they're the, they're the sort of principal format, the defining right. like category for the Xbox Halo and the PlayStation. The Xbox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and they also are the games that tend to involve a lot more mature content mm-hmm. um, versus other styles of games. And 
app I, I think if there's a game category that has been that's going to be sort of set aside by this rule that apple's made i think it's the first person shooter category um are you kind of implying with the mature content reference that maybe Apple's okay with that? I think so. I, I, no. I, I mean, I think they're, the, you know, let PlayStation be PlayStation, let the Xbox be the Xbox, and let them mm-hmm. own that. I, I think Apple's a lot more interested in families that would play a casual game together on the Apple TV. Right, right. Yeah, Which is why sense. Nintendo needs to be really scared right now. Yeah, yeah, or start developing games for the Apple TV. <laughs> oh, man, if only. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it, in some ways it's sort of analogous to Microsoft at this point. You know, Microsoft has tried and failed for several years now to reestablish itself in the smartphone business and eventually seems to have come around to the fact that, yes, it's going to keep making its own smartphones and it's going to announce some new ones in a couple of weeks, but um, it's also going to develop heavily for third-party platforms like the iPhone and Android. And, and it feels like Nintendo may be, at this point, getting to somewhat the same place where its own consoles are no longer selling very well in the face of these very powerful competing ones, but it has this new platform where it could develop games and enjoy some of the same success as a game maker rather than a console maker. Um, and, you know, the, the the console game market has always been something of a kind of razor, razor blades market as well, in that you didn't necessarily make tons of money on the consoles. You made a lot of the money on the games it's themselves. And so... You know, to that extent, it may not be a bad thing if Nintendo starts to shift this way. It won't um, as long as the iPhone App Store economics don't cross over to the Apple TV. I mean, the the thing about games on consoles is that they cost thirty to sixty bucks. And yeah, and yet you only sell know you know that's ten million of them because there's going to be so much more volume on the mm-hmm. App Store uh, than there is out there on physical media. So, yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know if it's just that the multiplier is different as well, though, right? So, you know, as long as it's limited by the number of consoles that you sell to relatively hardcore gamers, then, you know, that's the multiplier. Whereas if the market is now, you know, hundreds of millions of iOS devices, including tvOS mm-hmm. devices, um, then, you know, maybe you can afford to come down a bit on price because you make it up on volume. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I know there are a lot of developers scared about that happening on the Apple TV. Mm-hmm. that game prices will crater in the way they did on, on mobile. Yeah, and, and yet I think in some ways I think that's the key to the success of the Apple TV is that it does bring that model across mm-hmm. and to some extent leverages the scale from iOS. You know, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about the potential for you know, universal apps and the definition of universal apps to extend to the Apple TV and sure enough that's exactly what's happened. You, know, you now can get a universal app that will work across iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV, and in fact will preserve where you are in the game and, and um, you know, allow that to transfer across. And so, um, you know, from that perspective, I, I expect for many apps, it will very much adopt iOS-style pricing. And I think, you know, although that looks horrible if you're a Nintendo, I think it's one of the reasons why Nintendo never really took casual gaming to its logical conclusion, because it, it changed the types of games that people would play on these things, but it didn't really change the pricing, which meant that for casual gaming, you know, really want to pay hardcore prices. Um, And so I think, you know, that's where Apple really has the potential to change the game in a way that Nintendo kind of failed to. Yeah, I agree. All this conversation about gaming on the Apple TV ignores the fact that Apple isn't making that big of a deal about gaming on the Apple TV. If you you think back on the event last week and the ad that Apple put out for, you know, introducing the Apple TV, Siri got way more time in that ad than gaming got. And that gaming sort of just seemed to be this kind of 
you know, side observation compared to mm-hmm. the Apple mm-hmm. TV being an app platform. There, right. when you, you know, when you talk about Apple's playbook, which by the way, I thought was a fantastic article and insight. Um, they're clearly positioning the Apple TV as the iPhone for your television, where it's right. not, it's yeah. not about games, it's about apps. And, right. and right. games are just a category of apps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as it happens, on the iPhone, they're the most lucrative category. Yeah. Um, and yet Apple doesn't really talk that up either. Um, you know, it's, it's always talking about all the broad categories of apps. And if you go to the home page, yes, there are certainly games showcased on the front page of the App Store, but there's many other things there as well. And I think Apple would very much like to preserve that kind of balance, at least in the presentation. Which is crazy because um, Apple, Apple owns the mobile gaming market now. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there's really no, no other big player in mobile gaming when it comes to revenue to developers. Right. And uh, it's so funny that Apple never makes a huge deal out of it. Maybe the occasional iPhone ad, but mm-hmm. that's about it. Yeah, I wonder if part of that is due to, and this is worth talking about too briefly, I think, but part of it may be due to Apple's unease about the business model for a lot of those gaming apps. Um, which, of course, is in-app purchases. Um, you know, the vast majority of the top-grossing apps are not top-grossing because it's a high upfront price, but because these apps generate significant purchases after the initial purchase or download. Um, and I think Apple's somewhat uneasy about that. You know, they now have a section on the App Store that's about pay once and play. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly what the title is, but essentially it's, by implication, no in-app purchases needed. You know, you, you buy it once and then you don't pay anything ever again. Um, and... You know, Apple clearly makes a lot of money. Its developers clearly make a lot of money from in-app purchases. But I, I've written before on Tech Pinions about the fact that, you know, that's a dangerous model because it, it shows real sort of addiction-type characteristics among the people who do play it because yeah. you, you end up making vast majority of your money from 1% to 2% of your players, some of whom pay inordinate amounts to continue playing these games. Um, and I, I do wonder if Apple's uneasy about that and if they're reluctant to promote that too much. And I'm curious to see to what extent that model shows up on the Apple TV and how much Apple encourages or discourages it in, in subtle or overt ways. You know people are going to try it. Uh, so oh, absolutely. I'm no doubt it will be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess just going back to our earlier conversation about upgrade cycles, that's something that applies to the Apple TV too. And it's interesting to see it launched with um, you know, A8-based processor, which is kind of last year's iPhone-level um, performance. Um, you know, obviously, with some tweaks, it's a hardwired device and, and larger device and so on. But um, you know, do they update this thing every year? Does it go into a two-year upgrade cycle? This is another one of those devices where you know, the, the standard one-year upgrade cycle that we've seen with the iPhone doesn't seem to necessarily be applicable. And yet, they're going to want it to stay reasonably performant and competitive in terms of graphics and so on if the games are continuing to get better over time and yet not everybody's going to want to upgrade a $150 device every couple of years so I'm very curious to see how that pans out and I don't know if you have any thoughts about that yeah especially because in the console space where Apple's competing uh, even if they think indirectly here uh, that has not been an annual upgrade cycle oh Uh, by any stretch yeah. yeah and so I mean platforms in console gaming, platforms have to be stable for a relatively long period of time because developers need that stability <clears throat> because they're planning and building games years out in advance. Right. And uh, what's curious, yeah, so as far as the Apple TV upgrade cycle goes, we don't know. I mean, the truth is, this is just the next upgrade in what's already a, a product with a really wonky upgrade history, history mm-hmm. relative to Apple's other products. Right. I, I had the original Apple TV, 
Um, and, uh, you know, to watch it change over time the ways it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a product that I don't think Apple uses its standard procedures with. So I could picture the Apple TV staying stable for two years before it gets an upgrade, or I could picture it getting an upgrade next fall that's going to be mostly a spec bump, you know, right. supporting, for example, 4K video, because 4K TVs will be more common next year, and iPhones are, iPhone 6Ss are going to be shooting 4K video. Right. Um, you know, I think there will. I think a year of the Apple TV being out in the world means the gaming market will sort of establish itself, and it will be clear to Apple what upgrades are worthwhile as far as improving that experience goes. Um, the remote is an interesting question over time mm-hmm. because it is it's something like a remote needs to be pretty stable. I think I think of a remote similar to the Lightning port on an iPhone. Right. Like there's there's an ecosystem that's going to build around it, and mm-hmm. it's the sort of thing that Apple cannot change on a whim. And I could picture the remote essentially staying the same for three generations, and then Apple comes up with the new remote, right, which is going to be part right. of the next big upgrade. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. I, I don't think we can take, I, I don't think we can look at other products and expect a pattern when it comes to the Apple TV and its upgrade cycles. Right. Yeah. No, it's definitely going to be different. The question is just, is it, you know, two years, three years, you know, what would that cycle look like? And mm-hmm. to what to what extent will they maintain backward compatibility? I mean, clearly there's a break between the Apple TVs we had until now and this new one, just as there was, you know, a couple of generations ago. But, um, you know, the question is just, you know, how much functionality gets lost if you're not upgrading relatively frequently? Um, and there are a few, you know, there's there been an issue with the iPhone, but not to a huge extent. Right, and there are fewer features to upgrade on the Apple TV. Right. I mean, right. phones have cameras, touch screens, uh, touch ID. Uh, I mean, they have all these added features that right. the Apple TV is a relatively simple device, which within yeah. having fewer features means there's fewer bells and whistles or new tricks mm-hmm. that Apple can add as time goes right. on. Yeah, and too, I wonder if it's learned some lessons from the iPad and iPad upgrade cycles in terms of you know, everything will not upgrade, upgrade like the iPhone, even if it operates on a fairly similar basis. Right. Um, an interesting point, too, on the remote side, you were talking about the remote being relatively stable. This is something that I haven't seen written about a lot, but there are actually two different remotes. Um, there's a Siri remote, which is on sale in several countries, uh, and then there's a non-Siri remote, and I can't remember what that one's called, but um, that's available in other countries that, where Siri is not supported on the Apple TV. Um, and so it actually ships with a different remote that's missing the Siri button, um, or where the Siri button is basically a, an on-screen search button. Um, and so that's an interesting thing. I, I imagine it's just because Apple didn't have time to build the language support and so on for Siri in those other countries, but it's hard to imagine that lasting over time. It seems like something they should be able to fix fairly quickly, but interesting that they felt it was serious enough and something that was going to take them long enough that they actually left the Siri button off the remote in those countries. And makes me wonder if they'll ship a Siri remote later on, maybe even for free, um, or at least for a minimal fee in those countries when, when they're ready to support it. Yeah, that is interesting, especially because uh, the, the big deal Apple made about Siri and all of its marketing about the Apple TV. Right. I yeah, mean, it's, it's one of the most unique it's, features. It's for a now, marquee feature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's fascinating to me. Um, okay, any other thoughts on the Apple TV? Uh, no, I, I, I'm, no, I'm excited to get one. 
<laughs> yeah, so. likewise, likewise. Yeah, I applied through the uh, developer program, but got turned down. So, uh, yeah. as I'm sure most other people did too. Right. So, I'll have to wait and buy one in October along with everybody else. But uh, okay, you. let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, um, let's let's finish up by talking about the iPhone. And as we said at the beginning, we're going to cover this fairly briefly today because I think we'll do a deeper dive on the iPhone next week. There's so much to talk about here, but we did just briefly want to touch on some of the new features. We did mention 3D Touch last week, um, but but let's just run through some of these new features and just just discuss those. So, Aaron, why don't you start us off on 3D Touch? Because I think I talked about that a little bit last time around. So I watched. So Tim Cook was on the new Late Show with Stephen Colbert last night. Yeah. And Stephen Colbert pulled out a pink iPhone, or sorry, rose gold iPhone, <laughs> and uh, he. Uh, he, he was like genuinely impressed by 3D Touch. And mm. I think it's going to be sort of that under the radar feature that becomes a really big deal over time. Mm-hmm. I think it's more developer because it really does add a whole dimension, literally, to touch screens. And I think developers are going to do really cool things with 3D Touch. I, I think it's going to be, I, I think everybody eventually, every other phone manufacturer is going to have something equivalent. Um, you know, whether or not it's going to be as good, you know, we'll take time and we'll have to see. But I, I think 3D Touch is probably the biggest feature in the new iPhones that people don't appreciate or understand yet. Absolutely. I think I think it's really hard to, to know how important it's going to be until you really get to use it. And I only used it briefly in the demos last week. But even then, it was clear to me that it was going to be a big deal. It just makes navigation interaction with stuff so much quicker. Um, and just makes it much more fluid and flexible. Um, and, you know, Facebook and Instagram are already supporting it in the iPhones that were on, on display last week at the event. And so I got to use it with them. And, you know, it's, it's very simple. I think one of the biggest challenges, as, and it's the same challenge on the Apple Watch, you know, over the last several years, um, or to take a step back, in the original iPhone, everything you could do with it was right there on the screen. Like you basically touched stuff that you wanted to interact with. Mm. And the only way to touch it was to tap on it. Um, and over time, you know, the same thing went for the buttons too. Like you, all you could do was tap on the home button to go back to the home screen. And, um, you know, everything just basically was sort of binary. You either were tapping on it or you weren't. And then over the time since then, of the last, you know, eight, eight years now, um, Apple's been steadily adding new ways to interact with stuff. So there's uh, holding down on stuff on screen. If it's an app, it starts the apps wiggling so you can delete them and move them around. It's holding down on the home button. First, that was voice control. Then it became Siri. Um, you've got double tapping, triple tapping on the home button have different meanings. Um, you've got swiping up, down, left, and right on the screen, swiping up from the bottom of the screen, swiping down from the top of the screen. Um, you'll now have this 3D touch option as well. And the key thing is none of this is obvious to a brand new user to the iPhone, of whom there still are some, um, especially in countries like China. You know, none of this is immediately obvious visually in the way that the original sort of touch screen was. And so from that perspective, um, it's going to be an interesting learning curve for people. And on the Apple Watch, it's already that way where, you know, uh, force touch is there. um, And yet you don't always know where it will work and where it won't. And I, from what I understand, on, with 3D Touch on the iPhone, with apps that don't yet support it, if you try to th- uh, 3D Touch on them, if you try to hard press on them, um, and there's no functionality there, it'll just give you kind of a triple tap to kind of say, nothing here, move along, please, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be one of those things that people are going to have to experiment with, and there will be a bit of a learning curve for. But I absolutely agree with you that once people figure it out, and I think what, especially once third-party apps really start 
experimenting with it, I think it could be a really big deal. This is a great insight because, you know, like you were saying, with just regular tap, the button is there, you see it, and so you know it's tappable. Right. I do think 3D Touch, and I haven't used it yet, but I do mm. think 3D Touch is going to be a feature that people can stumble into more easily. Right. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. You know, you don't accidentally swipe with two fingers instead of one. At least most <laughs> people don't. But, right. but people do press harder on their iPhones sometimes than others. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, from an article I read, was an incredible engineering feat, much harder than I think people suspected. Mm. But, uh, <clears throat> but what's interesting about the about that for developers is that once customers get the hang of it, I think they're going to be annoyed at developers that don't implement it. Oh yeah, I, I think if they're in an app that isn't supporting 3D touch to make certain things easier, I think they're going to be like, oh, that developer doesn't have his act together. Right. And that's an interesting new sort of, it's a literally an interesting new dimension, right, mm -hmm. uh, for yeah. app developers yeah. to have to manage. Yeah, I'm starting to feel sorry for developers, actually, especially the smaller <laughs> yeah. indie ones. I mean, I already was with the Apple Watch, to be honest, because I mean, I look at an app like TweetBot, which I love on the iPhone. Um, I mean, it's still my main you know, app for browsing Twitter on the iPhone. Uh, but the iPad version hasn't been updated for, you know, in a meaningful way for a couple of years. It still right. looks like it belongs in iOS 6. Yeah. Um, you know, just visually, it hasn't been updated for a very long time. And then you've got the Apple Watch, which TweetBot also doesn't support yet. Um, you've got the iPad Pro now. Um, you know, so if you're a small indie developer and you're sort of one or two person shop trying to keep an app alive, um, you're having to update it constantly for iPhone to keep it compelling. But then you're also having to develop a three different types of iPad now, you know, some of which support split screen. Um, you're having to develop for the Apple Watch potentially as well, if that's relevant, you know, for certain types of apps, there's the Apple TV now. Um, you know, it's going to get harder and harder. And then you've got things like 3D Touch now as additional features and before that share sheets and widgets and other stuff like that and iPhone popping up all the time. It's hard to keep up with all of these. And, and yet you're going to be harshly judged, as you say, if you're not supporting some of these new features. So as I say, I feel a bit sorry for the indie developer oh, yeah. at this point for the, all the stuff that they have to support. What does TweetBot on the Apple TV look like anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, uh, not all know, of these do, things do, will obviously make their way across. Like but. read Twitter on the Apple TV. I, I can already imagine this. Yeah. So if you're a developer, here's the idea. Mm -hmm. You have a left-hand column with the tweets and as you scroll through the tweets the content that people are leaking to loads up on the right on the, on other the right side, of the side. Screen. yeah yeah so absolutely. you just you know if it's a youtube video it starts playing right away if it's a web page you get to read it right away mm -hmm. right so there's, right. A, there's yeah so there's a you can easily see. i don't know if it's worth anything mm -hmm. but <laughs> do you get what you to tell paul haddad and see if he wants to take it on <laughs> um uh, other new features on the iPhones, I mean, the cameras obviously got better as everybody was expecting, um, you know, 12 megapixels instead of eight on the back camera, um, better selfie camera, this interesting new flash stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think on the photography front, I mean, 12 megapixels is going to be great because these will be photos you can actually print and people do mm -hmm. still print photos and put them on their walls. And sure. I think yeah. that's where something I, I think. Uh, but I think the selfie camera is going to be a, a much bigger deal to people because, I mean, the selfie camera on the iPhone 6 and previous is 1.2 megapixels. And that's that's nothing. That's really puny. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of really bad photos in terms of the quality of the photo itself <clears throat> put up on Facebook and Instagram all the time. Right. <clears throat> and this is about to be a huge change in that regard. So that's kind of exciting. And I think mm -hmm. live photos... <clears throat> I think you, you compared it to Harry Potter style photography. Right. Yes. I, I, Last week. I think this is where we're headed. I, and mm. I, I think, uh, I mean, obviously other, 
other software uh, companies, other hardware companies, like smartphone developers, are going to need to be able to do the same thing. And there has to be a standard, a format that's standard here for this, which it sounds like Apple has created. Um, but it's really exciting, the, the live photos thing. I think the idea that every photo sort of has this living element to it is going to be really cool. I, I say that especially as a parent because it's really cute. I mean, we have some iconic pictures of our kids, iconic to us pictures of our kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea that I, I wish I could rewind time and actually mm-hmm. like just catch a glimpse of what that moment was like in 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 living space, not just frozen. Right. And, yeah. And I'm really excited about that feature and to see how it develops. Yeah. Um, this is not a feature as such, but something that was announced on stage is the iPhone upgrade program, which is Apple's own take on the installment plan or leasing plan for uh, devices for iPhones specifically where if you go into an Apple store um, to, to get, buy a new iPhone you'll now have the option of financing it through them essentially and it's actually through Citizens Bank which is their partner um, I've written two pieces about this over the past week so I won't talk about it at length here but wrote one for Tech Opinions um, on Thursday and then a follow-up on Friday on my own blog on Beyond Devices but um, you know, I think this is really significant in terms of how it's going to change the relationship between um, Apple and the carriers. Maybe we'll talk about this some more next week as well. But um, I think if you missed that or, or underestimated that, don't, because I think that's going to be pretty significant. Um, any other new features that we should be covering, do you think? It's worth a quick mention that now that we know a little more about the A9, um, this was a much bigger bump than it was going to the A8. Hmm. Um, it's a, a, and I say much, I mean, it's, it's a 20% difference in performance. Uh, <clears throat> and if you look, Apple has sort of the graph that they've been showing with new iPhones of, right. of how it, performance is increasing. And I, and I think this maybe should be a, a topic we do on question of the week in a couple of weeks hmm. is w- why is the A series improving so quickly? relative right. to other processor technology because yeah, it really is like gaining improvements and performance improvements especially uh, really rapidly and, and yeah. it's 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 the sort of thing that people I think aren't paying much attention to because you know when the story is hey it's faster that's not really a story because it's what everybody mm-hmm. expects right but uh, there is an interesting longer story happening here with the a series chips mm-hmm. that you know, this latest update is just another chapter in. Right, yeah, and the iPhone's also got a 2 gig RAM for the first time, up from one. Yeah. Uh, this is something that Apple's gone much more slowly, by contrast, than, um, say, Android device vendors, partly because of the way multitasking works on iOS versus Android. Um, right. two, 2 gigs up from one is a huge bump, too, which should help with the performance, too, and I'm curious to see some of the benchmarks and testing around the new iPhones when they come out. Well, then what sort of new apps might be available because they have more addressable space as far as memory yeah. goes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing which we're not going to cover today, but just to kind of flag this for next week, is iOS 9 uh, brings content blockers. Um, something that's been talked about a fair amount over the last couple of weeks in anticipation of the launch of iOS 9, which happened early today as we're recording. Um, and uh, we'll do that as the question of the week next week will be, you know, what are these and what's the significance and the likely impact of these new content blockers? But um, quite a number of those are launching today with the launch of iOS 9. It has the potential to be quite significant. Um, and of course, it's launching alongside the news app and, and other things from Apple, which present alternative ways of getting at some of this content. So uh, we'll be talking about that some of that next week and perhaps do a deeper dive on some other iPhone related stuff next week as well. 
Um, anything else you want to say before we wrap up, Aaron? No, we've gone over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so really interesting well, I like to think stuff. of it as just too much to talk about. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the good news is we did a half hour episode last week and this one will be about an hour. So if you average them out, it's 45 minutes, which is about our usual length. So hopefully our (laughs) listeners will bear with us. Um, I will just wrap up with a weekly pick. We didn't do one last week because we had sort of a special format last week, but I will just wrap up with a weekly pick since it's my turn. Um, I was in London a couple of months ago and a movie that I'd completely missed here in the U.S., Uh, was playing the week that I was there and my wife and I had a few days to ourselves without our kids and so we did go to the movie theater and um, we saw a movie called Love and Mercy uh, and it's a movie about um, the Beach Boys and specifically Brian Wilson the lead singer of the Beach Boys and and also the writer of many of their songs Um, and it was funny a few years back when we lived in London um, my wife and I went to a concert um, where Brian Wilson was one of the acts it was one of I think it may be in the Queen's 50th jubilee concert or something like that but brian wilson was one of the performers and he just seemed spacey and so we just assumed that it was just you know drugs and all the rest of it um and what this movie did for both of us really was to kind of make us a lot more sympathetic towards him because yes he did do some drugs back in the day um, but he had a really troubled history his father was this overbearing sort of abusive figure and then um as he got older and was um needed treatment for the various things that come out of the combination of that and his drug habit um, he fell in with this guy who was equally abusive to him and, and just had this whole experience all over again. And then eventually this woman came along who helped him out of it. And uh, at any rate, it's it's a really interesting movie. It's, it's, you know, not the most sort of joyful movie. It's definitely got some hard stuff in it, and it's definitely not for younger kids either. Um, but really interesting movie, and it'll make you appreciate the Beach Boys music in a whole new way. Um, just the sheer kind of genius of some of these songs that seem so simple on the surface. I might try to find one to play us out with here at the end, but um, it made me, apart from anything else, want to go and listen to a bunch of Beach Boys music. But the reason I'm mentioning it this week is that I did see it in the movie theater in the summer in London, but it's just come out on DVD and digital rentals and so on. So um, if you're looking for a movie to watch uh, this weekend, then uh, Love and Mercy would be a good choice. Uh, John Cusack plays the adult Brian Wilson. There's another actor who plays him as a younger man. He's also very good, but... uh, great movie highly recommended so uh, with that we'll wrap up thank you for joining us and sticking with us a bit longer than usual Uh, we should be back to our normal format and hopefully our normal length next week thanks